Welcome to The Ticket. I'm Isaac Dover. Now, the federal government still doesn't have a national plan. So state and local governments around the country have had to figure out what to do as they run short on money. Many parts of the country will likely see frontline workers laid off and essential services cut, and watch those cuts reverberate through cities and towns in major ways. These are going to be tough times ahead. People are frightened, many are out of work, and that's all on top of the problems that existed in America before this pandemic, like what's been brought out by the death of George Floyd and the violent protests that it set off. This is one of those places where the abstract conversation about government runs up against reality. Absent a federal bailout, there are going to have to be cuts to police and other first responders, which will mean more strain on those who remain and fewer on the job to respond if and when they are needed. So for today's episode, I'm going to talk to a local leader who's facing these challenges, someone who had already had a pretty nutty year of crisis before this in a city that has been trying to climb back for years. Nan Whaley is the mayor of Dayton, Ohio. Dayton was one of the hardest hit cities in the 2008 Great Recession, something it was still coming back from when the pandemic arrived. There was a mass shooting in August, which you may remember happened at the same time as the El Paso mass shooting. And when we spoke on Thursday, it was the one-year anniversary of a devastating set of tornadoes that hit the city. Whaley tries to stay upbeat, but she told me she's not surprised with how even face masks have become a divided issue. She told me she's worried about what happens if cities around the country don't get more help. And that led to a conversation about our social fabric in these times, what's holding, and what might not. Take a listen. Nan Whaley, thanks for joining us here on The Ticket. I'm glad to be here. Glad to be on The Ticket. <laughs> so I, I, I'm tired of being in the shutdown, the lockdown here. I think everyone is. I'm wondering, like, wh- where is your state of mind on this? You are a politician. Uh, I am sure you want to be out with people already. Yeah, um, I definitely have uh, COVID fatigue. You know, not having to be able to see people or saying to folks, see you on the other side or seeing people virtually, which has been really interesting. The uniqueness of that has certainly worn off. And then there's a frustration level, too, because of what's on the other side is probably going to be some really tough economic and social fallout in the community that we'll we'll see, you know, kind of like after you have, we just had the one year anniversary of the tornadoes. So we're like, you know, we're in this 10 week, 15, 20 week period where we're all in the tornado and then you get out of your house and you're like, okay, what damage has been done, right? Yeah. I'm not really looking forward to that that much either, frankly, because we'll see some, I think, some pretty significant scars in the community that uh, will will be painful to have to work through. What do things look like right now? I mean, you must be getting out just a little bit uh, for things, even if it's only going to the grocery store. But is it clear in the city already that there has been a big impact from this? Sure. Yeah. I mean, we've seen some impact on, um, number one, the homicide rates are up like 50% in the city. And you know, in cities across the state. So uh, we're on a call every day with mayors across the state of Ohio and Cincinnati's up about 170%. So all cities are seeing that. What, what explains that? Uh, Well, we have theories, Uh, you know, I think some of it is uh, straight up boredom, lack of movement in circles that are the underground economies being affected by COVID. Mm -hmm. And so actions are being taken by that. Some of it's uh, boredom unfortunately. We're also seeing an uptick in our accidental overdose deaths and that we knew that was like a hypothesis we had. And so really, you know, here you have a stay at home order and most people that are addicted to opioids, they actually use together. And so it's harder to use together. And so then 
their buddy is not next to them to perform Narcan or Naloxone. And so we have seen a tick there. Our mental health numbers are up. And I, I think we're just kind of scratching the surface on that. We'll see more after. Right. And then, you know, uh, there's the privilege discussion that's also tough, particularly for women uh, that have to go to work and just like the lack of childcare is yep. just, just killer on how they're trying to stitch this together. And, and that's been, I think, I don't have any children, as you know, Isaac, but it's been especially frustrating to me because it's been, women are the ones that do most of the childcare in general and uh, government and societies basically told women again, oh yeah, you still work, but you figured this out. And I right. find it really incredibly offensive and there's been no real action around it or even very much discussion. Uh, and then of course the unemployment rate is around 20% in the county. And I think that will get worse in mid to late July is my hypothesis as PPP runs out and unemployment's, I think, like July 25th. Yeah. There are already local governments that are feeling the hit of this, but like say it's probably just the beginning of the hit of it, right? Uh, And there's a stat that you have cited that in 2008, Dayton was the second hardest hit city in the country after Detroit. Yes. So, I mean, people don't really know where Dayton is located. It's on the I-75 corridor, three and a half hours south of Detroit. And back in the 60s and 70s, when the Great Migration happened, you know, even before that, but particularly in the 60s and 70s, the migration happened to us, same as Detroit, 30s, 40s, um, up from actually both Appalachian migration from Kentucky and the uh, Jim Crow South moved up. Uh, we were actually called Little Detroit. Our whole system was basically manufacturing of aerospace and, you know, at that time automobiles, but now it's aerospace and, and auto. So when the Great Recession happened and the auto industry was collapsing, Detroit was hit, but so was Dayton. Uh, we lost around 16% of the whole job numbers. I mean, it's just enormous. So that's 2008. How long do you feel the effects of it? We still have not recovered. Uh, so you still, So Dayton is still... In 2020, now looking ahead to what's going to come right. uh, from this, still dealing with 2008. Right. One third of the regions in the country, or maybe it now be one fourth, but a lot of Ohio regions did not ever fully get back to the pre-job numbers of before the Great Recession. And the Dayton region is one of yeah. them. So is there any way, I mean, you, you were saying you guys were able to prepare somewhat for the 2008 hit, but it seems like you can't really prepare for this one. And like, if I, nobody can, right. There's not, there's no, not like I a mean, trick to do here. Did, right? Like McConnell, didn't McConnell have like that stupid comment? Like, Oh, they're just trying to take care of their budgets because they weren't prepared. And I was like, who prepares for a pandemic? I don't think anybody in December was talking pandemic in America. So I was like, really uh, dude, that's really difficult to do. So I don't know anybody in December that was like doing their budget and say, I'm really ready for coronavirus 19, <laughs> you know? Uh, I mean, is there anything to do or is it just you got to see what kind of pain comes in here and, and then deal with that? Oh, I mean, we immediately started retrenching in the city organization, right? So for social distancing and for savings, we furloughed a fourth of the workforce. We, you know, immediately said, okay, no expenses that weren't COVID related. Uh, we've sent to our directors to say, okay, what will an 18% cup look like? We're trying to prepare what that would be. Uh, so we're trying to figure it out. Um, and like, we're still hoping that we get some federal help. Uh, you know, we've been through our share of some of uh, some tragedies in Dayton, and 
they felt very lonely. I don't feel very lonely in this one. Uh, the connections between all of us going through this, sharing different ideas, both at the state level and national. You know, I just, I just got off a call that we've had every week for the past 10 weeks with Bloomberg Harvard of you know, hundreds of mayors, you know, sharing ideas. And it's been really helpful. Like, you know, when they closed today, they were like, you've got to start doing some vaccination planning. So I text the Ohio mayors, like, we got to discuss this. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's been very helpful for us to think. And that's been um, very different and very less, I mean, quite frankly, a lot less lonely than I felt in the Great Recession and I felt during the shootings and the tornadoes. So. Let me take you back to the budget question, which you touched on earlier. One of the things that we are hearing out of people in Washington is uh, Republican leaders in Washington, I should say, is that there shouldn't be bailout money for affected states. And what they say is blue states should learn to live within their means. And that is something that has gotten a lot of pushback from a lot of places. But what, what's uh, interesting about your situation is Ohio is not a blue state. And you are a Democratic mayor and you... I think, now, Isaac, unlike the national media, I think it's a purple state. I'd just like to go on the record. So. Oh, it's certainly not a blue state. Right, right. Uh, right? And it is a state that Donald Trump won by a lot. Uh, and it is a state that has a Republican governor and one Democratic senator, one Republican senator. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not a state that is prime Democratic territory. It's hard to be a Democrat sometimes in Ohio, <laughs> correct? But you want a bailout. You want money from the federal government to help take care of the shortfalls that are here. Correct. So what are the people in Washington not getting about that? Well, I think, I mean, I think it shows just how out of touch they are about what this money is going to. I mean, for the locals, it's the front lines, it's police officers and firefighters who, by the way, voted for Trump. It's uh, public works employees, the people that pick up the trash. I mean, this is not fancy stuff. This is like the living and dying on the ground that's going in mid-sized cities in Ohio and in America. And frankly, you know, if you look to Texas, for example, which another red state saying, hey, we need help. We had 111 mayors sign on uh, for help. And I would guess like 98 of them are probably Republican. So I think that that's what they're missing. This worry about like pensions, like Ohio doesn't have issues with the pension system. This is just straight up, you know, for the state, it's around education and healthcare. And for the cities, it's about frontline services that are saving your life. I feel like almost that I think they're, what they're doing is really egregious now is basically they're playing chicken with us. And they do this at their own peril, frankly, uh, because we are talking about workers that again, they're, they're, they're probably likely they're voters. <laughs> I mean, so you're, you think you're going to have to fire police officers and firefighters uh, in Dayton if you don't get more federal money? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, 60% of the budget is police and fire. Ohio is a municipal income state. So 70% of the budget of the city of Dayton comes from earnings tax. So if people aren't working, you don't have a budget. So it immediately falls out, uh, I think, in July or August after the unemployment runs out. And all the other cities in Ohio are, are in the same boat. And I think we all went around and we think like anyone anywhere from 15 to 25 percent is where the Ohio mayors are thinking the trouble will be. So what are we talking about? Like dozens of police officers, hundreds of police officers? Like, no, no, yeah. So, you know, like so when 60 percent of the budget is police and fire, you just can't get to an 18 percent cut without doing something about police and fire. And, yeah. it will, and you know, we've already cut this enormously through the Great Recession and even before. So. Uh, it I seems think like that, what that means for the city, though, is like if you're looking at already a spike in homicides uh, and overdoses correct. and you're going to look forward to likely cuts 
it to police and fire and probably to like trash pickup, that kind of thing, sure. right? Yeah. What does that mean for the way a city functions? Well, I just don't think it will function well. I mean, I think that's what, what we're saying is, you know, you're talking about, we don't really do anything else. I guess that's my point. You know, if you add, if you have police and fire at 60% and then you add public works, we're at like 78%. So the, what what's the rest? It's like, okay, a little bit of recreation. Yeah. And we might decide we're not going to do any recreation anymore. We're just going to take that off. That could actually happen. Right. So you just do like the very, very basic services in cities. You're still going to have to cut them because it's still not enough to get to that bottom line. And and if you don't do recreation, then you don't, uh, uh, to, you were saying that people think the boredom is one of the things that's contributed sure, to it, right? absolutely, yeah. And I mean, and like, you know, I've said to, you know, like the police labor union, like, look, this is getting really tough. He's like, I completely know, they, they, they all know. And I mean, they don't, and it's egregious, frankly. You'll bail out airlines, you'll bail out like every other thing known to man, but not police or fire. Are you serious? And it's not like everything is like calm otherwise, right? We're seeing what is happening in, in Minneapolis uh, mm-hmm. with uh, George Floyd who was killed and, and the violence that has erupted after that. And one of the things that I have been struck by uh, over the course of these now three months of this lockdown is that the social fabric has held as much as it has. And even as you're talking about homicides being on the rise, uh, and obviously there are other things that are going on as domestic violence cases, the overdoses you were talking uh, is that there have things have not spilled over in the way that we are seeing happening in Minneapolis right now. And that's because of this incident with this man who was killed by the police officers. What does that worry you to think about things, whether it's because of some spark that sets it off or just in general that we could reach a point where uh, the social fabric does start to tear and then you have to figure out what to do about it? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think if any mayor tells you they don't worry about what's happening in Minneapolis happening in their city, they're uh, really naive or they're not telling you the truth. Uh, I remember um, when Freddie Gray happened in Baltimore and Mayor Coleman was the mayor of Columbus and he was friends with Mayor Rawlings Blake. And so I called and said, you know, if you checked in on her, how is she doing? And he said, oh yeah, you know, it's very tough, Nan. And he just said, you know, cause by the grace of God, we all go. And I mean, the social fabric, you do all, you do a lot of work on it in your community, but there are things just, you just don't control and you have to recognize that too. And, um, and even when Minneapolis happens, that has affected my community too. And so um, they're not isolated. It seems like when you think about all of that and then the possibility of or the likelihood, I guess, of of police cuts and other services cuts. And it's just it it, it really does seem to be creating a, a very dangerous situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, honestly, it's, it's not there's just not much else that we do. So, I mean, of course, we're going to try to protect frontline services. But that's really, if you only do frontline services, what what are you going to do? All right, let's take a short break. We'll be back with more with Mayor Nan Whaley in a moment. I want to ask you about uh, one of the things in relation to the pandemic that you've uh, used your bully pulpit to talk about, which is uh, face masks. Uh, and yeah. uh, this issue uh, 
confusing to me how this has actually become quite the issue that it has been. Um, you said a couple of weeks ago that you think that anybody who doesn't wear masks is being, uh, or is complaining about wearing masks being unpatriotic mm -hmm. and that they should think about the sacrifices that they are being asked to make right now in comparison to the World War II generation. Correct. I stand well, by that statement. <laughs> uh, tell me what you mean by that. Is it because uh, you have protests around the country of people who are saying that they shouldn't do this or, you know, all these uh, people who it's, it's become like a, a hot thing to take a, uh, an iPhone video of yourself uh, having a fight with uh, some store manager about not going in uh, with a face mask on. I, I just felt like when I think about, you know, I think about generations and what generations are going to be um, remembered for. And what are the flashpoints of those generational times when you think about history? And of course, they're called the greatest generation. Uh, they really were, you know, it would be my uh, grandparents. And I'm not talking about individuals, I'm talking about the collective of that whole group, yeah. right? So in every, I wanna be clear, every generation, there are terrific people and terrible people. So, uh, but that generation was asked to do amazingly difficult actions for the greater good. You know, I mean, first of all, like, hey, giving your life for your country, regardless of class, something that we haven't done since. Um, uh, women going to work to build what needed to be built and doing things that they were completely not socialized for during that time and not comfortable with. It really, I think, helped propel the next generation around um, uh, women's issues. Um, you know, even to the stories of, you know, you can only shop on certain days and you can only, you have, you know, we have rations for how much food you're going to get. Think about that. I mean, you know, we, we are upset about the grocery store right now. This generation was only allowed so many fruits and vegetables, right, at the store. So, I mean, when you think about all of the things they did to sacrifice for our country and the countries of others, and they did it pretty quietly. I mean, there were, I'm sure, eight or nine percent that was like, this is bull. I don't even agree with America, which is fine. But, you know, the great collective was all in. And you compare that to now where really what is happening this whole mask the data shows that it's about you caring for your neighbor it's really not even about you it's about your neighbor and we can't even do that i, I just really wonder where the social fabric of our country is you know because patriotism to me is you know not necessarily doing something that benefits me personally but benefits my country my community and um to turn that away and say, I'm not interested in doing that just because I don't like it on my face or I have a right not to. Well, yeah, I mean, okay. But you know, I don't think that's really like being in it for America. Uh, and so Do you I think just it's that, 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 that I think it's painful. Is it that that 8% or 9% that you were talking about that might have been there in the World War II generation is just more visible now is more uh, that that where you know that's that there would have been essentially the same kind of people who are making those iPhone videos now uh who they were around uh, in the 1930s and oh, 40s so Maybe they have more agency now than they yeah. did that could be I mean that could be but I think it's like I think it's probably triple 8% here I mean I'm probably guessing I think it's probably like 25% yeah. And then what really bothers me is they think they're being patriotic by not wearing a mask. I find that completely wrong. So. It seems like some of it is that maybe the sacrifice that's being asked for is so small to wrap a scarf around your mouth that you can make a big deal out of something so small. Whereas like if the stakes are 
your life is on the line because you are going to war or right? like you could be bombed at any moment, right? Like that, that, that maybe changes how people think about it. I don't know, Isaac. I, I mean, I think these questions are issues of life or death. And, and we were learning more and more about this pandemic and this disease. And I mean, I, I just think of that generation when doctors and scientists got on TV and said, you know, go take everything and bury it in the backyard. They'd be like, okay, I'm going to do that. And right. This fight around the collective versus the individual is, I think, stacked too far on the individual. I really do. And I think patriotism is something that's about the collective. Yeah. And I, mean, I, I find that when people say, like, oh, this is like the Nazis, right? It's like, well, like, there was someone who a couple of weeks ago was comparing uh, being told to stay at home to being, like, on the cattle car going to the camps. And, like, like they're, awesome. like, it, I mean, people are being asked for the most part to like hang out in their nice homes with their couches and refrigerators and microwaves. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, it, it is, it, it, I just am struck by that we are fighting over this. Like, it seems like we will fight over everything and anything. And to your point, like this, I guess is familiar to you in Ohio as mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> one of these places where so much of the cross currents of uh, national politics hit, hit each other. Right. I, I'm not surprised by it. <laughs> I expected it. I mean, what was amazing for the early part of it in March is how bipartisan the spirit was and then how I saw it fall apart. And I mean, it's sad. Uh, it's sad to, sad to witness, sad, but I'm not really surprised, unfortunately. And I mean, look, I find the mask uncomfortable. It's like, you know, a pain. I don't I think anybody likes wearing a mask. Yeah, nobody right? likes it. It's not like, oh, yeah, this is the best experience ever. You know, I'm kind of gracious. You know, your face is hot. It's the summer. I mean, I get it. But, like, I care about my fellow Daytonians and my fellow, you know, fellow Americans more. And, yeah, that's a, an inconvenience I'm willing to bear for my community. You, you have had uh, a crazy year just in the last calendar year. Yeah. Uh, the tornadoes. Just celebrated the one-year anniversary. Right. One yesterday. year since tornadoes hit Dayton, there was the that mass shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, now this, uh, I, I wonder though, when, when the shooting happened, president Trump came to Dayton, mm-hmm. um, and, uh, you spent a little bit of time with him. If you, if you could say something to him about this directly, like wh- what would you say to him? It, it, what part of this do you focus on and talking to him about? I think the only thing that president Trump cares about is himself. What I would say is do yourself a favor. You know, this is something that is clearly in your political interest to do. Take this issue away from the Democrats. I mean, I really, that's what I'm advocating for. You've spent so much of the the last year in a consoler role and helping people get through these uh, tragedies and rough times that have hit them. Uh, We have seen a, a real lack of that on the national level. I'm wondering what what you think given your experience needs to be said and and needs to be done as people are continuing to feel the hit of this and process all the different ways that it is uh, affecting them, whether it's uh, through a death or uh, job loss or whatever else. I don't see a lot of empathy in the national dialogue at all right now. And I, I recognize there's not a lot of women besides the speaker there. And it's, um, I have learned and appreciate the value of vulnerability and leading through being vulnerable. And that means to show that you're human, 
uh, to show that this is hard on you too, uh, but to be resolved and honestly resolved that you're going to get through it, you know, both as a, as a person and as a, as a community. And I think that's hard to do. I'm not saying like, you know, it's easy. And certainly if I had gone through 2019 and 2014, I wouldn't have been as comfortable with myself to be as honest with the people of Dayton about myself. I wouldn't have been able, I don't think I would have been able to leap through this as I have in this past year. Um, but I mean, I just long for leadership that shows some empathy and I long for leadership that even if I don't agree with, I can respect. And, you know, I think that's why I do appreciate Governor DeWine. I mean, we do not agree. I mean, even through the pandemic, I have disagreed with him, but I respect him. And I know, like I learned this from the shooting, that he does have empathy. And I long for that kind of leadership in the federal government. That's, I think that's what I miss the most. And like, look, I'll go back to DeWine. You know, I ran for governor in the primary to run against Mike DeWine. I mean, there are things we heartily disagree on. But like, I do believe, and it does give me comfort as a leader, that while I might disagree with him, I know and he shows that he cares about the state first. And I do not believe that the president does. I think the president cares about himself first. You want leaders that do put and sacrifice for their community, their state, or their country before themselves. And yeah, you find comfort in that as another leader. Absolutely. All right. Well, why don't we leave it there? All right. Seems like a good spot. Uh, somewhat upbeat. <laughs> Mayor Nan Whaley. Yeah, don't make me sound so depressing. You know, it's so hard right now. It's, it's hard. And I think part of what we need to all do is like take on what's going wrong and, and what's hard for all of us directly, but also look for uh, what is going right or what could go right. I know. Uh, I don't know if you saw yesterday, they did the uh, Wall Street Journal story on Dayton. And so it was like the front. And so I said to people, they'd be like, whoa, I just bleak. I was like, yeah, it's fair. And I mean, what's the moral of the story? Like pandemics suck. They suck. <laughs> That's, um, I think I think that will be like a news flash that we can put on this. Right. <laughs> Mayor Nan Whaley thinks the pandemic suck. <laughs> <laughs> Woo, that was news. <laughs> I think it's a pleasure to talk to you. It's always great to talk to you. Talk to you soon. That'll do it for this week of The Ticket, Politics from the Atlantic. Thanks to Kevin Townsend for producing and editing this episode and to Catherine Wells, the executive producer for Atlantic Podcasts. Our theme music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. To support the show and all of our work, the best way is with a subscription. Just go to theatlantic.com slash support us. Thanks for listening. Stay safe.